Uh, Mr. Weston thought it would be appropriate if I spent a little time on Brexit. You might wonder what Brexit is, but it's Britain's exit from the European Union and uh, the consequences of that. March the 29th, of course, is the day when the deadline is up, when Britain leaves, either with an agreement or without an agreement. And you might say, this is all Britain lives for at the present time, or all the United Kingdom lives for, because it's not just Britain that is exiting the common market or the European Union. All of the United Kingdom is exiting. So Brexit is a bit of a misnomer. We'll talk about misnomers today. It's a bit difficult to say you cup, you kexit, right? So Brexit is a little easier on the, on the tongue than you kexit and uh, so forth. But it's all of the United Kingdom that would be leaving Europe. It's one of those things that is going to go down to the wire, as Angela Merkel said. This will be an 11th hour deal, and this is when the uh, deals are made. For Europe, it is a matter of its survival. Because Britain wants to break you might say, the philosophical ideas that have formed the European Union. It doesn't want those anymore. It doesn't want the free movement of people. It doesn't want some of those, you might say, fundamental ideas on which the European Union was created. So for, for Europe, this is a do-or-die effort because if Britain gets off with this, Who's going to be next? Italy, Greece, Spain, Portugal. Who's going to be the next one? So, of course, for the Europeans, they've got to play it rough and hard. It's a hardball game, or as we might have said in years gone by, it's a game of chicken. Who is going to blink first? Now, of course... Most people in Britain, i.e. about 52% of those who voted, voted to leave, which means 48% voted not to leave. And so it has led to a remarkable division of the country uh, between those who want to remain and would work at any means they can to enable remaining in part of Europe and those who want to leave. Part of a problem, and part of a problem, I think, of all nations at this point in time, is the problem of leadership these days. We do not have statesmen to lead countries, as we did in times gone by, of people of likes of Churchill and so forth. When you talk about politicians these days, the adage of John Kennedy, think not what you can do for yourself, but if I can loosely paraphrase it, think what you can do for your country, has been forgotten by politicians today. People go into politics, in many cases, for what they can get for themselves. 
And it's not surprising. Our societies are individualistic. It's all about the self. It's not about the community. And so we find politicians very much concerned about what is in it for themselves rather than the country. And so we don't have the leadership that we had in decades gone by. Britain at the present time has two major political parties which are led by people who are not leaders. They may have uh, stalwart uh, characteristics to them in various ways, but to boil it down, they are not leaders. And so the countries are not led. And of course, many people would say the same in terms of the United States. What I'm saying today is very true here in the United States. Britain is preoccupied with Brexit. The United States is preoccupied with a wall or something of that nature, part of which exists and part doesn't. And so we we have a, a remarkable situation in the world today where the nations that should be helping others are consumed by their own internal problems and what they want for themselves and uh, so forth. So uh, uh, this is very much a case in point. Part of a problem with uh, Brexit at the point in time, the agreement agreed between, the uh, pact agreed between the European Union and uh, Theresa May has been rejected more or less outright by the British parliamentarians because it creates a constitutional crisis for Britain. Just as if the Europeans go soft on Britain at this point in time, they will make a constitutional crisis for themselves. And of course, the constitutional crisis is over the situation of Northern Ireland. Is Northern Ireland going to be part of the European Union or is it going to be part of the United Kingdom? And the majority in Ireland are unionists, which mean they want union with the United Kingdom not with Europe. They want to remain loyal to the crown and so forth. So it's a a fascinating situation. The economic challenges that exist, Britain is a global player. It's totally integrated into the European supply chain, into the global supply chain. It's interesting at this point in time, Britain's automotive industry is larger than it has ever been. But it is largely a supplier to a global automotive supply chain. At times, British steel companies or metal formers supply body parts for North American automobiles and export them across the sea. Now, of course, that's not a problem in terms of Brexit because we've got arrangements there. But it's a big problem for Airbus when your wings are made in Wales, a major part of the airline, of an aircraft, the wings, very sophisticated these days. They are made in Wales and then shipped into Europe to become part of a finished product. Of course, if Britain is not on the common market, then what does Europe do in terms of tariffs on 
British made wings for European aircraft. You don't establish an assembly line for aircraft wings overnight or in a year or so. So the disruption, the potential for disruption is great and considerable, both ways. So, of course, as I said, this is a game of chicken, and the question is, who blinks first? It's a problem that exists for the Europeans, exists for the British, the UK, because we don't follow God's way of life. We don't consider it. In the light of that, I'd like to spend some time today dealing with one of those areas that we seldom give great thought to. I did have a look and have a look at these sermons, and I found that uh, Mr. Ames had given a sermon on this subject back in May 2009. It had not been spoken of seemingly since, or there's nothing on the website in terms of a sermon since those days. And so I thought it would be an appropriate uh, subject to address again in terms of our understanding of the challenges that God calls us to. The sermon, of course, is based on the fifth of the Beatitudes, Blessed of the Merciful, which was a sermon that Mr. Ames gave back in May 2009, sermon number 532. And, of course, it has been touched upon in articles in the uh, Living Church News and uh, commentaries and so forth uh, by various people along the line. But I'd like to uh, focus upon this aspect of uh, being merciful today. This was the fifth of the Beatitudes that Christ gave, and it's a rather interesting Beatitude to consider. Because this one, this is the first beatitude in which we are required to do something before we get something in, ret in return. Blessed are the merciful, so they shall receive mercy. Matthew 5, verses 7. And of course, we have two related words here. We have to be merciful. And, of course, the idea of being merciful is to show or exercise mercy. So the two words are very closely related. We've got to be merciful before we receive mercy. And uh, rather interestingly, because to whom do we have to be merciful? Does our Heavenly Father require me to be merciful to him? Is it possible for me to be merciful to my father? The first four of the Beatitudes are clearly talking about our relationship with our Heavenly Father. Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, are all talking about our relationship with our Heavenly Father and the Son, Jesus Christ. And the attitudes that we should have in seeking to honor and obey them. But in this case, we're told to be merciful if we're going to receive mercy. To whom are we going to be merciful? 
not the Father, not the Son, Jesus Christ. It talks about what you and I have got to be like to one another. If we are going to receive mercy from our Father. And so it's a, it's a uh, interesting uh, situation for us to consider. You might say the Beatitudes turn from our relationship to God, a focus on that, to our relationship with one another. How do we exercise a godly attitude towards one another in a way which is going to be pleasing to our Father and enable us to uh, receive the mercy that we require from him? Now, part of the problem is words. We talk about being merciful. We find the word appears twice in the New Testament. We've looked at what we've touched on one of the scriptures. We'll address the second one shortly. But of course, being merciful is an aspect of showing or exercising mercy. So what do we mean by mercy? What do we mean by being merciful? It's shaped by the way we use these words. Now, if you're a student of God's word and you are aware of the languages that are written in, you'll very quickly come to realize that sometimes words are used when they shouldn't be used. To give you an example, we talk about the mercy seat. In the Hebrew and in the Greek, it has absolutely nothing to do with mercy. Not related to it at all. In fact, I was going to speak about it one time in a, to a French congregation, and I thought I would do some checking beforehand and got out a French Bible and found they called it something else, propitiary, which is an appropriate translation in the Greek, in the uh, French, of the real word that lies behind the mercy seat. And of course, the mercy seat in the Hebrew is kaphoret, which means a covering or atonement. And propitiere in French is an appropriate translation of a word we would use, propitiation. You'll find that in Romans chapter 3, places of that nature. So we have oftentimes problems with words that have been brought into our translations, which don't really belong there. They confuse the issue. I think I understand why the translators of the King James Version use the term mercy seat. Because you see, in English, in the English language, when we talk about mercy, we use it in a very legal context. I don't know whether Shakespeare shaped it or Shakespeare was a product of the English language. But our usage of the word mercy in the English language really mirrors a great monologue of Shakespeare's in The Merchant of Venice, where Portia was in the court with Shylock the Jew, who was demanding his pound of Christian flesh, etc., etc. Really nicely anti-Semitic uh, play. 
And Portia had this wonderful monologue about the quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as a gentle dew from heaven. It is twice blessed, etc., etc., etc. And what does, what does Portia do or what does Shakespeare have Portia do? He sets up mercy as being the opposite of justice. So in other words, we have a very legal situation being developed where mercy is defined in terms of being the escape from justice. And you might say in terms of the English language, we find that uh, we would probably translate Matthew chapter 5 and verse 7 in a way that says something to me, and I'm, I am paraphrasing, blessed are those who forgive, for they'll be forgiven. Because you see, we see mercy in terms of justice. And how do we escape justice? Yes, that is part of mercy. But I would put it to you, brethren, that if that is the limit of our view of mercy, then we're shortchanging what our Father intends. Because oftentimes... Do I know what you need to be forgiven of? I have no idea whatsoever. Nor should I know necessarily. But yet I can still exercise mercifulness to you without knowing what it is that you need to be forgiven of. And so I put it to you, brethren, that just understanding in the English language the use of mercy as being a legal term in terms of uh, uh, something whereby we can escape justice. It's an incomplete view arising out of a mistranslation of the word or a failure to understand the word. If you look at um, Merriam-Webster, they provide a definition for you of uh, mercy. And they tell us that it comes from Middle English and it comes from the Anglo-French merci, from which we get thank you today, or in French at least, merci. And it comes from medieval Latin, merced, and it related to the price paid, wages, etc. And hence, uh, Miriam Webster says, it's usage. And so it's the first usage of it they list, which is the principal usage of it, is a compassion or forbearance shown especially to an offender or to one subject to one's power. Also lenient or compassionate treatment. They begged for mercy. Now what we're talking about, we're talking about mercy in exactly the same terms as Portia was describing mercy in the Merchant of Venice. And, of course, the King James translation and uh, uh, Shakespeare were, you might say, somewhat contemporaneous. And uh, one wonders where the idea got offline firstly. But, you see, that's why the translators, I'm sure, talked about the atonement or the caferet that covered the Ark of the Covenant. Or, in French, propitiere, they called it the mercy seat. Because they saw it all in terms of forgiveness. And hence, 
Mercy is a word that describes forgiveness. Now, I'm speculating. Uh, I'm not necessarily a uh, linguistics expert, but I could see that's a way in which these things arise. We have a limited understanding of a word, and we apply it in various ways, and on we go. And so Merriam-Webster's first usage of a term is a compassionate forbearance shown especially to an offender. So we're in a justice-forgiving situation. Second uh, application they talk of, a blessing that is an act of divine favor or compassion. Like it was a mercy that they found her before she froze. And, of course, then they talk about the works of mercy as a third application, the works of mercy amongst the poor. The Oxford, across the other side of the pond in the UK, the Oxford Dictionary, has as its first definition or first usage of a term, compassion or forgiveness shown someone towards someone who is within one's power to punish or harm So, you know, the idea of forgiveness is very much part of the idea that we receive in terms of mercy. Yet it's interesting, the the word mercy appears as a verb some 28 times throughout the New Testament. But in reality, only two of those occasions could really be defined in the first instance in that way. And so we have... uh, Matthew chapter 18 and verse 33, where somebody owed money. And the king forgave the individual because they couldn't pay. And of course, you know what happened. He went out and found a, another servant who owed him a pittance. And when the man couldn't pay, he put him in prison till he could pay. And the king remonstrated with him. And so we find in verse 33, He said, should you not have had compassion or mercy, because it's the same word as the word mercy in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 7. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And so this aspect of uh, forgiveness and so forth is, you might say, enshrined in that particular verse, in that particular parable. James chapter 2 and verse 13 is another occasion in which the verb is used in terms of forgiveness. Where James records for us, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. And of course, that's a wonderful explanation of what goes on in Matthew chapter 18. When the king found out this man had not been merciful to somebody else, The individual suddenly found the blessing that he had from the king disappeared. And he talks about, James talks about mercy triumphs over judgment. Now the fact that this usage of mercy only appears to be used twice in this way in the New Testament shows us this quality is far more nuanced, there's more to mercy than just forgiveness. There's more to it that we need to understand. So we need to look at the rest of Scripture to understand what being merciful is all about. 
and uh, understand this in terms of, as well, the aspect of forgiveness. Now, I'd like to uh, introduce you then to the first use of the term that is translated merciful in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 7. Once again, we're talking about translations. Because that same word that is translated merciful was used in the early Greek translation of the book of Exodus. And so we turn back to Exodus chapter 22, verses 26 to 27. We find the uh, instructions being given by the eternal to Moses as to how Israel and we are to conduct ourselves with one another. The day of Pentecost, when they had gathered together at uh, Mount Sinai, and they entered into a covenant relationship with the eternal. That begins in chapter 24. So between chapter 20 and the giving of the Ten Commandments, and the statutes and the judgments, we find this element recorded in verse uh, 26 and 27 of chapter 22. And he said, if, it, if ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering. And it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear him. And in the Greek translation of this verse, it says, for I am merciful. No aspect of forgiveness here. It's a matter of the care and concern for another person. Now, in the English, of course, the English translation, being from the Hebrew, we use the term compassionate. We understand that. But if you go back before the time of Christ... The people who, the Jews who translated the Bible into Greek or the Torah into Greek understood this word to relate to being merciful. Little more than just forgiving. In other words, I take care of you. And once again, we'll come to see a reason why they would make the word merciful rather than compassion. So we might say that the first usage of the Bible of the term merciful reflects the eternal's compassionate character and consideration for those who lack. And I think that's an appropriate understanding of it, as we'll get to see. That idea follows in the next usage of the term merciful as well. And, of course, when I use the term merciful, I'm talking about the English term. But I'd like you to turn to one of my favorite scriptures, Exodus chapter 34 and verses 6 and 7, where the eternal appears to Moses and tells him about the very nature of God. It's what his character is really like. What is it to be a member of a God family? It is to have this character within us. 
And so the Eternal told Moses that you're not going to see my face. I'm going to hide you in the rock and I'm going to put my hand over you. And as I pass by, I'll take my hand away and you'll see my backside, my hinder parts. That was not what Moses was looking for. And then in chapter, that was chapter 33, and then in chapter 34, the eternal passed before him and proclaimed. And the eternal said, this is what you're going to be looking for. This is what is important about me. It is what is my character. The eternal, the eternal, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, of course, when we read that and we talk about him being merciful, we oftentimes think of him forgiving us. But I would like to challenge you, because in verse 7, and I think it is in verse 9 as well, there are two other words, two independent words, that talk about the eternal's ability to forgive. And it's not just about forgiveness. He is merciful and gracious. And so uh, this aspect of merciful I would contend is much more than just about forgiveness as we tend to use it in terms of the English language. We read in verse 8, Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. Then he said, I've now found grace in your sight, O Lord, my, let my Lord, I pray, go among us, even though we're a stiff-necked people, and pardon, or you might say, and forgive our iniquity, and our sin, and take us as your inheritance. The idea of forgiveness is well embedded in this section of Scripture. The eternal can forgive. No question of that whatsoever. But he's also merciful. It's interesting if we look at some of the usage usages of the word merciful in the Scriptures. We find, for instance, in the Psalms, Psalm 116, and we could read the whole section from verse 1 through verse 9 because it talks about the eternal's mercifulness here. He starts in verse 1 by saying, I love the eternal because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. No, oh, yeah, it could be pleas for forgiveness. But he goes on, he said, I suffered distress and anguish. Things were troubling me. And he was merciful to me. He showed mercy to me. He said the eternal preserves the simple when I was brought low. He saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the eternal has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling, I will walk before the eternal in the land of the living. And so he's talking about mercy. He's not talking about sinning necessarily and the need of forgiveness. He's talking about the challenges of living a godly life in this day and age, or in his day and age. 
Just as we face challenges living a godly way of life in our day and age. Turn back to Psalm 111 verses 2 and 4. 2 through 4. The psalmist describes great are the works of the eternal. Full of splendor and majesty is his work. And his righteousness endures forever. He's caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The summation of it. The eternal is gracious and merciful. Okay. So he's talking about the works of the eternal. And he's applying mercy to the works of the eternal. He's applying mercy to the splendor and majesty of his work and of his righteousness. And his remembrance And so God's mercy, the mercy of the eternal, is characterized by his preservation of his people, of the simple, his saving of those in need, and his bountiful dealings with his people. And so the scriptures also reveal that mercy is an integral part of the covenant relationship, which the eternal entered into with Israel in Exodus chapter 24. We turn, make a note maybe of Second Chronicles chapter 30, verses 8 through 9. This was an occasion where Hezekiah was trying to encourage the people in the northern kingdom to turn back to the eternal and to keep his Passover. The captivity of Israel was impending. It wasn't far away. And uh, these people were encouraged by Hezekiah to come back to Jerusalem and to keep the Passover with the southern kingdom. And Hezekiah's message in verse 8 and 9 of Second Chronicles 30 says, Do not now be stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourself to the eternal and come to a sanctuary, come to Jerusalem, to the temple, which he has consecrated forever. And serve the eternal your God, that his fierce anger may turn away from you. For if you return to the eternal, your brothers and sisters will find compassion. And their men, their captors, and uh, with their captors, and return to this land. For the eternal your God is gracious and merciful, and will not turn away his face from you, if you return to him. In other words, the eternal, his covenant relationship with the people is based on mercy. He realizes their needs. He realizes their weaknesses. The concept of being merciful was very well understood by the Hebrews. And it's effectively expressed in the Hebrew language. Rather interestingly, Hebrew is a language tended to build very real pictures of words as opposed to the Greek language which loves abstractions. Okay, one's about philosophy. You might say the Hebrew language is a very concrete language, not in terms of cement and gravel, but in terms of real substance. And it's rather interesting that the word gracious or rather uh, merciful, comes from a very 
real situation. The word is rechem, R-E-H-E-M. And it is related, it is drawn from the word raham, R-A-H-A-M. Simply a change of vowel. One is a woman's womb. The other is mercy. And one has to ask, does mercy portray in some way the way in which a mother should take care of that she carries in a womb? We heard some disturbing comments today in the introduction to the sermonette about abortion. That's not the way in which the eternal intended it to be. Human life was to be valued and respected and cared for. And of course, I would like to hope most women who have an understanding of life seek to care for that they carry in their womb. Right? They understand the fragility of it. Okay, some are abusive. Some smoke and drink too much alcohol and binge on other things that are not healthy to the child. But they tend to be the exception rather than the norm. Most of you ladies sitting in this room went through the aspect of childbirth. You were very conscious of what you were carrying. And you look forward to the parturition of that infant in a way of great excitement and anticipation. And you wanted to hold what was in your womb in your arms and cradle it and take care of it. And you gave of yourself in a remarkable way. I knew what Mr. Hall was going to speak about today, but I think it's rather interesting the more I reflect on it, just how much this ties in in terms of being born again. How does our Father see us at this point in time? How does he care for us? With great care, right? He doesn't abuse us. He doesn't subject us to uh, uh, substance abuse so that our bodies become deformed or misshapen, does he? He takes care of us in such a way that we can be a whole member of the God family. I can remember as a young man the, uh, the tragedy of the thalidomide era. And some of you who are of age of I am will probably remember those grotesque photographs of children who had been deformed because of a drug given to the mothers. Of course, the poor mothers were not anticipating such a problem. A very sad situation. But it's interesting in Hebrew, this aspect of mercy being related to something as personal and intimate as a woman's womb. And the way in which the contents of that womb is so carefully taken care of. And I think it's a useful aspect for us to appreciate the way in which our Father shows mercy to us to expand that understanding of what it means to be merciful. 
Yes, forgiving us is part of his mercy. It's a way in which he cares for us. It's interesting as well because so often in the the Hebrew, we have a mistranslation of a word. We oftentimes have uh, the word translated as merciful, and it should be gracious or gracious, and it should be merciful. But it's interesting as well because so often these two words are coupled together in the Hebrew or in the English. We use the word gracious and merciful. And so we find uh, we've already noticed that, for instance, in Exodus 34, verse 6. But notice Psalm 86. Psalm 86, verse 15. It said, But you, O eternal, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. What does a mother do to the unborn child? She gives the strength to it, doesn't she? And even when the child is born, she gives the strength to it. She will suffer. She will go without herself for the sake of a child. That is true motherhood. It's like the eternal deals with us. We've turned along in in the Psalms to Psalm 103, where the psalmist records for us the eternal is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And, of course, what the psalmist is doing here, he's plucking from Exodus 34, verse 6, and repeating it, restating it in various forms. In fact, we had a class in the uh, Minor Prophets a couple of summers ago. And I think the students were quite amazed as to how often Exodus 34 verses 6 and 7 reappeared throughout the Minor Prophets. Literally every one of them. Because this becomes a foundational point. The character of our Heavenly Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, is the foundation of what God's revealed Word is all about. But we have to become like them. We have to develop that very character as well. And they're merciful and gracious in a remarkable way. He said, as a father shows compassion, in fact, it should be mercy on his children. So the eternal shows compassion or mercy to those who fear him. Okay, so the translators tried to introduce another idea here, compassion. But the word that's used is merciful. He's like a father looking at his children and realizing, son, don't do that. Nope, you're not up to that. Let me catch you. Let me do something to help you so that you don't hurt yourself. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. He remembers the frailty of human life. That's true for each and every one of us. So the characteristic of being merciful is also closely linked with being gracious and very important for us to understand. It's interesting, uh, one one commentator on Isaiah 49 verse 15 made this comment about uh, the aspect of love. It said, the depth of this love, 
as expressed in Isaiah 49 verse 15, is shown by the connection of this word with Rehem Raham, the way in which mercy is related to that particular part of a woman's anatomy that enables a child to be conceived, develop, grow, and be born. A remarkable uh, part of our Father's creation. And he talks about, uh, this commentator talks about uh, Isaiah using the uh, aspect of a mother's love towards her nursing baby. And he also notes something that we just read there in Psalm 103 in verse 13, but it can also relate to a father's love. Now it's interesting for those who are fluent in the Spanish and French languages, of which I am not, the terms merciful or mercy are derived from this compassionate aspect rather than the legal aspect of the English language. So the challenges that we have in understanding these things are not necessarily true in other languages which tend to keep closer to the original. Uh, we've already said, uh, seen, the translators are not always consistent in the way in which they uh, treat words. Uh, we have the uh, translators translating the word for mercy or merciful as compassionate in various cases. Several other times in the Old Testament, the English word merciful is translated from another Hebrew word altogether, the word chesed. In fact, we love to sing Psalm 136. Strictly speaking in the Hebrew, it's not about God's mercy. His mercy never fails. That's a truism, absolutely. But that's not what that psalm is actually saying. It's actually saying his chesed, his loving kindness never fails. And the word is used, the word hesed is used in uh, Exodus 34 as one of the characteristics of God's character. But it's a very difficult Hebrew word to translate because it's not related to anything real or concrete. People have great difficulty trying to understand it. You can, you can see the way in which it's translated in different translations. And you can see the problems that people have. And so oftentimes it's translated as loving kindness or compassion or in Psalm 136, mercy. And we sing it as mercy. So uh, we have to uh, be aware of that. Now one thing that the Bible is abundantly clear on though that we can really appreciate is that mercy or being merciful is a quality that is associated with godly character. This is something you can take to the bank, so to speak. It is first and foremost, and always, an element of godly character. God's word does not, in fact, ever use the word merciful in terms of evaluating a human being. David is never described as being merciful. Give me another name. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Noah, Abel. All of the prophets. The twelve apostles. Paul. 
None of them are ever described as being merciful. Well, because you see, it is not something that we have naturally of ourselves. It is an aspect of God's character that has to be instilled within us through the indwelling of God's Holy Spirit. And as we progress, as we develop, as we heard in the sermonette, so that character is developed within us so that at the resurrection we can become members of God's family in a remarkable way. And so as I mentioned to you earlier on, there is only two usages of the term merciful in the New Testament. A challenge to you and me in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 7. You and I have got to become merciful. We have got to take on this character of God. We've got to become like him. And the other occasion is an evaluation of Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17. Where it talks about Jesus' role in coming to save us from the bondage of Satan. Not necessarily talking in the first instance about forgiveness. But he's talking in this instance about freedom. About release from the bondage and the bondage of death that humanity faces as a result of being deceived by the God of his world. And so in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17, Paul records for us that Jesus Christ, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So you might say the aspect of forgiveness is here as well, but it's also talking about something even greater because it talks about God's care for us. God realizes we're physical human beings. We're deceived by Satan. We need our eyes open. We need to be released from that oppression in a remarkable way. And so uh, Jesus Christ is our role model to be merciful. If we are going to be merciful, we model ourselves on Jesus Christ because he understands it. We find as well throughout the Bible many examples of the eternal's mercy. We find in the New Testament examples of Christ's mercy. Examples of human beings being merciful to one another are very rare. Very rare. In fact, Paul makes it clear that not being merciful is one of the problems of humanity being cut off from God. Now, of course, if I read from the New King James Version, it gives it away, but let me read to you from the English Standard Version, uh, which is a fairly modern translation. Uh, And uh, the way in which Paul is translated here is common to most modern translations of the Bible. And I'm reading from Romans chapter 1, verse 28 through 31. And it said, since they did not like to, did not see fit to acknowledge God, 
God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Somewhere in there is the word unmerciful. In fact, it's the very last word of that verse, of verse 31. The word ruthless is a modern term we use to describe a person being unmerciful. Ruthless. Get somebody out of the way. Destroy. This is the state of humanity cut off from God. And so we see the fifth beatitude describes a quality that does not come naturally to human beings. Yeah, good parents. Maybe they tried to instill some of these aspects in you. But ultimately speaking, this only comes through the indwelling of God's Holy Spirit. Mercy is an aspect of godly character that we must take on as part of our character by the exercise of the use of God's Holy Spirit. It's something that must become internalized within us, guiding our thinking processes and actions. And, of course, this is something that can only happen, as I said, by the indwelling of God's Holy Spirit. And what is the gift of God's Holy Spirit? Is it not also a realization of God's mercy to us? But we need this. We fragile human beings made of the dust of the ground to which we return need something greater than ourselves. And God gives us that. He shows mercy to us by giving us his Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul explains in Romans chapter 2, it is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. One of those scriptures that's well worthwhile making part of our thinking. It is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. Important to understand. God's goodness to us. Later in that epistle, Paul refers to Exodus chapter 33, verses 18 and 19. In Romans chapter 9, he quotes from Exodus 33. If you'd like to turn to Romans chapter 9, we'll pick it up in verse 15. Where Paul said to the church, he said, He, that is God, says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. My calling, your calling, the calling of a person who gets baptized next year 
or whenever. The calling that we have is an expression of God's mercy to us in a remarkable way. And he wants us to understand that. Incredible, isn't it, to stop and think of it. It's incredible that the God of all power, the great God of the universe, would extend this degree of mercy to us mere mortals who are nothing. He turns his back on us and we're lost. He blows on us and we disappear. And yet he has mercy towards us. Or goodness, as he said in other places. He also expresses his compassion, graciousness, and mercy to us in many other ways, as we've seen. And he wants us to learn to treat other people in exactly the same way. To see the others as our Father sees him. It's a kind of mercy that he expects us to show to others. This is what Jesus meant when he said to the disciples and to you and me, blessed are the merciful. You're really blessed. If you have learned to develop that quality of mercy in your life and express that to others, you truly are blessed. There's a reward for you in God's kingdom. It's interesting if we go to Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 6 and verse 36. He told the, told us, he said, Be you therefore merciful, as your Father is also merciful. Become like our Father. Become like Daddy. The quality of mercy, as described in the fifth beatitude, is not just about a relationship with justice. Yeah, that fits in. That's also part of God's mercy. But if we limit it to that, we shortchange our Father's character. But the act of showing mercy goes so much further than that. Being merciful has to do with the sense of caring, nurturing, and compassion for one another. Our Father's willingness to forgive is an expression of that compassion. And of course, John chapters 3 and verse 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, but whoever believed on him would not perish but have everlasting life. God's love for us is, you might say, a facet of his mercy towards us as well. It's an act, godly act of showing other human beings created in the physical image of a God family the same care and concern that our Father and his Son have for their creation, the work of their hands. As we take on this godly attribute and learn how to be merciful, as our Father in heaven is merciful, then we will in turn receive the mercy from him that we desire and need so very much. Now, it's impossible to finish a sermon like this on the aspect of mercy without touching on one other occasion in which the aspect of mercy or the lack of mercy is given 
as a warning. And if we turn to Revelation chapter 3, and we see the warning that the Eternal gives to Laodicea, we'll find that the term comes back to tell us, be careful. In verse 15, speaking to Laodicea, it said, I know your works, but you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. You're not going to receive mercy. You might say it's the implication. But that's not what I want you to focus on. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. We know the, the, the statement about Laodicea. Rich, wealthy, need of nothing. We're self-made people. We're individuals. He said, you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. The word miserable is without mercy. Laodicea is seen as being without mercy. They haven't sought to develop being merciful in their lives. And that's a, that's a, a lesson for each and every one of us. If we are going to stand before the Son of God, we had better make sure that we are merciful people and we understand all that is involved in that. And so Jesus Christ counseled Laodicea, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich. In other words, get your mind on the true riches, the spiritual things. Get away from your miserable state and become merciful and have mercy to one another because that's part of the character of God. So he wants us to buy gold, refine them the fire that we may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed indicating righteousness. But you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And he said, anoint your eyes with eyself that you may see. And so this beatitude of blessed of a merciful comes back to warn us in terms of the last era of God's church, the challenges that we face at these end times. When people are all so concerned about themselves, they and themselves alone, that's the world in which we live. And the eternal says, uh-uh, it's not just you and me. It's you, me, and everybody else. And I want you to see them, and I want you to react to them the way I react with you. And the more you do that, the more I'm going to react with you in a way which is exemplified by mercy. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to provide for you, and you will be able to stand before me at my son's return.
and be part of my family, to be born into the very family of God.